We're thankful to be able to gather together this morning to give some thought to worshiping our God in spirit and in truth. And in fact, that was the lesson text read just a moment ago from John chapter 4, verse 24. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And though that verse is no doubt often been a source of consideration, and yet it says so very much. Today, we will in fact look at a new perspective on that verse, or perhaps a new perspective at least. These introductory thoughts will hopefully bring to our appreciation the particular development or movement that I would invite us each to consider this morning. You know, as Christians, one of the things you and I do, because God commands it, is we worship. We come together. We do this, in fact, not just in a whimsical or happenstantial fashion, but we do so because not only has God commanded it, but the Bible has said much about it. You may well notice on that slide, in fact, that worship is a topic often occurring in the Bible. The very first occurrence is in Genesis 22, the very last in Revelation 22. Isn't that interesting? And so isn't it true that as we study about worship during the course of all that revelation from God, one of the things I would suggest we might well learn is this. I'd like to make a claim, or at least invite you to consider something. I would argue that one of the most difficult, one of the most challenging things you and I do all week long is worship. Now, maybe that sounds strange. Maybe perhaps a person could think, well, all I do is come and sit in a building for an hour. What's so hard about that? But I believe as we're about to see, worship is far more than that. And again, may I say, it may well be, it seems to be from the Word of God, that one of the most challenging things that you and I do period, as a Christian, is to worship God in spirit and in truth. Let's discuss that at least for a few moments this morning. At least looking at a few passages, laying a foundation for any such claim like that, and then I think we will be reminded how special, how great, and how wonderful worship really is. First of all, a few more basic ideas. Laying a foundation, general thoughts, if you please, about worship. At the top, you'll note the following. That word, either in its explicit form or something immediately connected to it, occurs almost 200 times in the Word of God. Isn't it true, then, that God's people have always been individuals who worshipped Him in the ways that He found pleasing? You may notice the Old Testament word that's most often translated as worship is the word shakah. And that word literally, as you can tell, means to make obeisance to. It means to prostrate before or to do reverence to. Again, shakah. As you and I think about those examples in the Old Testament of individuals who would bring their animal and they would appropriately offer it, or perhaps they would offer incense. Any of the ways in which they worshipped, they were in fact making obeisance to God. They were engaging in that activity that was very meaningful and very, very amazing from their standpoint. And as you come to the New Testament, the Greek word is proskuneo. It literally means to kiss the hand toward, to do reverence to. And so as you and I know that in the New Testament presentation, proskuneo, You and I are told to, we kiss our hand toward God. It's as though we bow before Him. He extends in an interesting way 
what you and I can honor in regard to Him in connection with worship. It's easy to see already that worship occurs often in the Bible. The circumstances and situations in which it occurred, both Old and New Testament, are very, very interesting. The next thing on the slide is you and I make a connection to what that word means for you and me. To kiss the hand toward, we think of one inferior making honorable service to those who are superior. Well, when it comes to God, that word then literally has this connection. Acts of reverence directed to God. You and I then engage in certain acts, A-C-T-S, which God has authorized. And as we do them in the way He has commanded, we thus honor Him. And we do that in this thing we call worship. Acts of reverence directed to God. That definition leads me to notice that the first occurrence of that word in the New Testament is in Matthew chapter 2. There it was Herod, oddly enough, who in fact had desired to worship the baby Jesus. And you might remember that he sent away his servants, you go and find him and come tell me where he is so I can worship him. Notice he was wanting to do acts of reverence in service to again that babe. But thankfully, of course, there was the intervention of God and they found him but never went back to tell Herod. But as you and I develop that point nextly, note, worship is commanded and therefore it is not optional. It's not as if one can take it or leave it. If you want to please God, we are not left with any option. Jesus said it like this in Matthew chapter 4, verse 10. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. Commandment, to be sure. Thou shalt do this. And so every individual who is interested in pleasing and honoring God will desire to serve Him in the attribute of worship, and to do so, of course, in the way that God has authorized there's a text in Revelation 22, the last chapter in the Bible, that describes again another attribute of this. John was impressed with the revelation he had just received. And he fell down ready to worship the angel that delivered it. And the angel quickly corrected him and says, See thou do it not! Worship God. Even that angel recognized the great God of heaven and He alone is to be worshipped. John, don't worship me. I'm not God. You do worship, of course, the great God of heaven. As you and I think about that today, we live a lot of centuries this side, of course, of that revelation. But isn't it true that that same principle is still in force? We thrillingly worship God. And so, doesn't that bring an element of trouble to our mind? as we give thought to modern movements in worship. Now, there are lots of things the human family has attempted to reorganize it, to redirect it, to change it in such a way that it's more thrilling for those who participate. There's all kinds of skits and plays and performances and musical instruments and any number of other supposed changes with the goal of improving worship. And you and I well know that, again, as acts of reverence directed to God, it's not our business to try and change it to suit our palate, but rather 
to simply be content with, with an excitement to doing it the way God says, and to feel the energy and the excitement and the value contained in that kind of worship. No wonder with that said, let's close that slide back in John chapter 4. In the 24th verse of that chapter, God is a spirit. Let's unpack a few of the particulars of that verse. First, God's a spirit. God does not dwell specifically in the physical regime and realm in which you and I do. He is not flesh and bone. Rather, He is that great spirit reigning on the throne in heaven. He is a spirit. Furthermore, the text says, they that worship Him. So, that spirit, that great being that we recognize as Jehovah, as Yahweh. Notice He's a spirit and He must be worshipped in spirit. Now, you and I know we are immortal spirits. Genesis 2 verse 7 says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Man became a living soul. And He, in fact, gives to each individual at the time of conception this spirit. God's the Father of our spirits. Zechariah 12 verse 1 In light of that point, God's a spirit, we must worship Him with our spirit, meaning with our intellect, meaning with the heartfelt desire and excitement within us. It's got to be something we want to do. Worship is not just merely a habitual set of acts one gets through. If that's our view of it, we've missed in many ways the thrust, the value, and the majestic point of New Testament worship. Those first century saints in the book of Acts, they didn't have the buildings we do. They didn't have nice padded pews. They didn't have all kinds of conveniences and necessities in light of the things that we enjoy. But it didn't deter them. If they had to sit on a floor, they'd come. If they had to sit in an uncomfortable position, like in a window, for hours, they'd still come because that's where their heart was and they wanted to be there. It wouldn't hurt for you and I to ponder. If circumstances were far different today, would our heart be sufficiently enthralled in worship, we'd still go, even if it were inconvenient, even if it were difficult, even if the circumstances of nice conveniences weren't even there. We read in Acts chapter 8 of a man who traveled a thousand miles one way to worship. What do you think about that? Would you and I be willing to drive? I'll even reduce it from a thousand. Would we drive to Chicago if that's what it took to worship? That's not even a thousand miles. Would we do it? What if we had to drive to Chicago and sit on the floor? Would we still do it? In a building that wasn't heated, would we still do it? It's something to think about. The New Testament presentation of worship is a very telling thing, isn't it? It speaks about first one spirit. Is it what I want to be doing? At that point, let's close that slide and notice then that the other aspect of that worship, and Jesus highlighted it beautifully, didn't He? They that worship Him must... That little word must means this is an essential thing. It's a a necessary thing. Worship without spirit is not going to be pleasing to God, and worship without truth is not pleasing to God either. 
to say that worship must be in truth is to say that then it must be in harmony with truth. Didn't Jesus say in John 17, 17, Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. In 1 Peter 1, 22, we're told, of course, that we are cleansed and sanctified by the washing of water in regard to the truth. Having said those things, we've already been challenged about the construction of worship and the nature of it and our participation in it. Let's be more specific, though, even than that. Let's look at one by one the various elements of worship and appreciate our involvement in them. May I say it this way, our commitment to them. And that's what I chose in part as the title of that slide. First of all, one of the things, and we have joyously participated in it already, is that of singing. Let's speak about singing for a moment. Now, I realize that it's perhaps a tempting thing. We come together, we sing these songs. I've heard them over the years, hundreds and hundreds of times. Maybe I don't participate, actually, in that so much. I know the words. Well, if that's the thinking you and I might have, I hope these verses that we're about to see will challenge us to look upon singing a bit differently. First of all, what is the singing described? You may well have heard individuals say when they learn that you're a member of the Church of Christ, oh, you're the people that don't believe in music. Au contrary, we do believe in music, but we believe in the kind of music that God has specifically authorized in the Bible, which is congregational a cappella singing. Congregational meaning all of us participate. A cappella, no mechanical musical instruments. Only the utility of the voice. Congregational a cappella singing. That being said, look with me in Ephesians 5 verse 19. As Paul addressed these thoughts to the church in Ephesus, he said, Speaking to yourselves. So notice, there is an aspect of singing in which we are speaking to each other. I know we're honoring God and we're praising Him, but we're encouraging each other. We're teaching each other. We're speaking to one another with these beautiful thoughts in these songs. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. So you'll notice we speak to one another. And that is issued as a vital and necessary part. Along that line, may I say, that singing is then a commanded part of worship. I think the Colossians passage perhaps makes that even a bit plainer. In Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. So we're singing to God. Do you and I envision Him as the audience of our singing? We, we've just stated we benefit one another. He's the one that we should be most interested in pleasing. We're singing to Him. Notice then, singing's commanded. May I say, this isn't optional. If you and I can sing, we sin if we don't do it. Hear me now. If we are able to sing, and I realize there could be physical circumstances which prevent it, but if we can sing and we choose not to do so, we're guilty of erring. To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it's sin. 
May I say that each of us need to keep in mind the urgency and the beauty and the pristine privilege we have of singing praise to the great God of heaven. He's interested in what we do, and He wants us to glorify Him. Let's add to that the following. So as we sing these songs, 1 Corinthians 14, 15 says it like this, I will sing with the Spirit, and I'll sing with the understanding. There's that word Spirit again. Jesus had just said, if you worship God, you've got to do it in truth and Spirit. Well, Paul said, I'm going to sing with the Spirit. I'm going to joyously be thrilled that I can do this. Are you and I excited to sing? May we be honest with ourselves. Yeah, do I kind of look forward to when the singing's over and I can get on to some other part of the worship? I hope we have a renewed appreciation that singing is special and God loves it when we sing to Him. He loves it when we praise Him and adore Him and honor Him by way of these songs. But you'll notice Paul said one more thing. I'll sing with the understanding. May I say that poses a challenge to all of us. The words of that song that I'm singing, am I aware of what I'm singing? Or again, have I just sung that song so many times over all the years? I know the words, and so I can let the melody send forth from my mouth without ever thinking about the words of that song. If so, I'm not worshiping in song as I should. Paul said, I got need to understand what I'm saying. A moment ago, we sang that song, 843. 843. Now that's taken from the wording of Psalm chapter 42. So remember when we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, that song literally came out of the thrust of Psalm 42. And what a beautiful sentiment. When we sang that song, did we mean it? Did we mean it? Or did I just kind of let the words fall forth from my lips without ever thinking about what the words actually were? If it's the latter... May I suggest we make a renewed effort. On Sunday mornings, we sing seven songs usually during the course of our service. Sunday night, we sing five usually. Wednesday night, we sing three usually. As we sing those songs, let me encourage each of us. Pay attention to the words. You're praising God by what you say. Let's sing with the understanding. Are you beginning to get a feeling of what I said earlier? Worship is one of the most challenging things you and I will do all week long. It's easy to let your mind wander. We all struggle with this. During the course of that song, maybe a child is acting up or at least doing something that gathers your attention somewhere. You need to work hard on focusing on the words that you're singing. We all do. We ought not let distractions take our mind off on some tangent path if we can help it. As you and I discuss singing, let's close that slide like this. It prepares us to ponder, what about other acts of worship? Singing is a beautiful thing. Let's try another one. Our prayers. Praying to God. You know, again, we pray several times during the course of our Sunday morning service and then Sunday evening and Wednesday evening. And we recognize an opening prayer, the prayers, of course, surrounding the Lord's Supper, Closing prayer. One more time, may I suggest, it would be very easy to let one's mind drift. What's for lunch today? 
My favorite ball team starts at 12.30. I have more stuff waiting for me at work tomorrow than I can shake a stick at. The devil is really good at distracting you and me, taking our mind off the certainty and the nature of worship. That's why we've got to work so hard at it. Let's study about praying for the next few moments. The New Testament pattern of prayer and worship began early on in Acts 2.42. On the very day the church began, the inspired writers there pointed out, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in breaking of bread, and in prayers. Those early New Testament disciples, they were given to prayer, and Paul wrote, pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 In light of that subject of prayer, we certainly are aware that the New Testament has a number of interesting things to share with us about it. We know in a mixed audience... God has ordained the men to be the ones to lead the prayer. But you'll note this, men. I will that men everywhere lift up holy hands unto God. Now, he's not talking about your literal hands. He's talking about the kind of life you live. Is your life one recognized as holy, separated and consecrated to God? Every man that leads us in public prayer needs to have a life that's recognized to be a pursuit of godliness. Gentlemen, may I say, as we lead these prayers, we have quite a responsibility. We need to lead the prayer in such a way that all can recognize their part in praying to God. May we appreciate it's not just the gentleman's prayer who's leading us. He is leading us in prayer, but all of us are praying. He just happens to be privileged to be the one leading it. But we all are praying along with Him. You'll note in that connection in 1 Corinthians 14 how delightful it is when that prayer closes that amen can be asserted not just by Him, but by all of those who are able to participate. You see, it's a beautiful thing to realize that gentleman has led us in petitioning God, thanking God, extolling God, and doing so in such a way that has drawn our attention to not only thanking Him for the myriad of His blessings, but petitioning Him for the necessities of our life. And it's a marvelous thing to behold, isn't it? For that connection, you might note this. In 1 Corinthians 14, 15, as another obligation for all of us, I will pray with the Spirit, and I'll pray with the understanding. When that gentleman's leading us in prayer, where is your mind and mine? Isn't that a good question? Is it on lunch, the ball game, work tomorrow? point is, we need to focus to the point where in that prayer we are aware of what the gentleman said so that when he's done, we too can echo the sentiment of amen. In the understanding, gentlemen, that again places a bit of emphasis on us. As you lead prayers, make sure to use language and to use thoughts whereby understanding is able to be appreciated because all of us need to understand what you're saying so that we can, of course, let that prayer be our own to God. But in addition to making that statement, note this next one. The gentlemen who lead us, and may I say even all of us in our private prayers, be careful. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, don't use vain repetitions. So don't just get in the habit 
just because it's a habit of saying the same old thing over and over and over. Be careful. Again, you want your spirit to be in it. If prayer just devolves into a habit of saying the same old thing over and over, it's quite likely your heart may not be in it to the degree that your spirit's connected to it. Let it be your earnest petition unto God. No vain repetitions. Now notice, the word vain is critical. It's okay to voice the same things as long as you mean it. The word vain means empty. May we never let prayer just become this ritualistic habit. Oh, it's time to pray and say the same thing over and over without meaning what we're thinking or saying. That kind of prayer is not pleasing to God. It's vain. No wonder in that light. You and I need to have a conviction, a belief in regard to prayer. Believe that God is. Believe that He hears the prayers of His faithful Christians. 1 Peter 3, verses 11 and 12. And we believe He'll answer. May I again say, work in worship is easy to see now, isn't it? We've got a lot to do when prayer time comes. One last thing on that slide. What if I fail in this regard? The gentleman leads in prayer, maybe a lot of other people, but I'm kind of hungry and I'm thinking about a fantastic lunch waiting at home. Have I just prayed acceptably? If I've been thinking about all of that during the prayer? The question answers itself, doesn't it? I haven't prayed with spirit and understanding. No wonder then, again, may I say, we fail if we've allowed our prayer life to become nothing more than just a rote presentation. What else about worship? Number three, the time for the preaching. Or may I say it differently, a consideration of the Word of God. Isn't it true that, of course, God is the very focal point of our worship? I would borrow that thought from Matthew 4, verse 10. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. And so every aspect of worship, whether it be the singing, the praying, the preaching, the Lord's Supper, or even the contribution, all of it is intended to honor, to exalt Him. But now specifically with regard to the preaching, it has ever been true, hasn't it, that the Word of God plays a fundamental and very basic role of, cri of critical nature. And so it still continues today. The Word of God. I've merely asked you to note several verses. Psalm 119, verse number 11. Thy word have I hid in mine heart, that I might not sin against thee. Or perhaps this one in 1 Peter 4, 11. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. 2 Timothy 4, verse number 2. To Timothy, Paul said, preach the Word. Did you notice? Paul didn't say, preach the newspaper, preach the National Geographic, preach Aesop's fables. He said, preach the Word. And so you and I thrill at the thought of having the Word presented to us by virtue of the sermon, if you please, or the preaching aspect of worship service. In that light, you'll notice we have biblical example Paul preached to the church at Troas in Acts chapter 20. When those folks came together for worship, part of that worship involved Paul's preaching to them. Now I confess that was the same time when he preached a long enough time and a gentleman fell asleep and fell out of the window. 
most of the time today, our, our habit is such that our sermons don't last quite that long. But still, the place of preaching is highlighted, isn't it? To that, might we add this text in John twelve forty eight? Jesus speaking said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. That same word that we are privileged to study now, to have presented to us now, is the same word that shall be our judge. It'll be the standard of judgment on that day of judgment. One final thing about preaching. There's been many a joke made over the years about sleeping during the preaching. Maybe you've heard lots of those poems. Now I lay me down to sleep. The sermon's long and subject deep. If he should quit before I wake, please give me a little shake. Now maybe that sounds humorous, but I would say in light of our study today, preaching is not a time for sleeping. It isn't a time to again let our mind be drifting off on a thousand and one different subjects. In the Old Testament, God in fact presented a number of thoughts about the urgency of their worship. And quite often again, those were examples of rather memorable events when it wasn't done right. Did God accept Cain's worship in Genesis 4? We know He didn't. Now Abel's He did. Later on, in regard to Nadab and Abihu, did God accept their worship? And they were leaders, and the answer is no in Leviticus 10. Did God accept the worship of Uzziah in 2 Chronicles 26? And the answer is no. What about that of Saul in 1 Samuel chapter number 11? Well, all of those, again, are merely presentations. Just because we assemble for worship doesn't mean God accepts what we do. We've got to make sure we sing as we ought, we pray as we ought, and now we give thought to the Word of God as we ought. What about number four? In addition to these, may I invite you to consider money, the contribution. Now, some may think, now really, is money a part of worship? And apart from the teaching of the Word of God, we might be tempted to say, well, likely not, but the Word of God says differently. There is a part of worship in which we make a financial contribution to the work of the Lord at this locality. Could we develop it like this? By 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2, we have the absolute presentation. Lay by in store every one of you as God has prospered, that there be no gatherings when I come. And notice, he began that verse by saying, upon the first day of the week. And so, shortly today, we will have the opportunity to participate in that act of worship in which our free will monetary offering is presented to God to be used for His kingdom at this Pippin Church of Christ. The contribution. Could I again ask you to note this? According to the New Testament, that contribution involves a degree of planning. And may I say it involves purposing. As he purposeth in his heart, so let him give. Not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 and 7. Now that word purpose means there had to have been a plan. Did you and I plan for this? 
several days or even weeks ago did we make a plan such that today this is what we were going to offer in light of the fact God had prospered us this much. Again, isn't it interesting? Purposing and planning involved worship is work. It's not just a happenstantial matter that one just enters into lightly with no thought. To that, could we add the following? In Ephesians 5, verse number 20, it is there stated that inasmuch as God has blessed us so greatly, we offer in thanksgiving things unto Him. And so our contribution, among other things, will be in light of the greatness He's given to us. Has God been good to you? Has God been good to you? As you and I each give thought to that, perhaps the blessings, the particulars of our life, the contribution is a connection spoken of in 2 Corinthians 8, whereby it's the proof of our love. If others were aware that that was the proof of our love, would they conclude we love the Lord? If that contribution is supposed to be the litmus test of it, what would others think if they knew what we give? May I say again, through four acts of worship, we found every one of them demands our commitment, our participation, and the appreciation of our heart and mind. One more to go. What about the Lord's Supper? You knew as we list the five of them which one was the only one left. If you'd like to be turning to 1 Corinthians 11, there's much said in that chapter about the Lord's Supper. We'll certainly not read all of it, but you probably remember that the church in Corinth had some issues. They weren't partaking of the Lord's Supper as they should have. And Paul had to correct them, and he did so with a lot of teaching that went along with it. And so as we begin at the top, we remember that while he was still upon earth, our Savior instituted a timeless memorial of him. When it came to the unleavened bread, he said, This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And then he took the fruit of the vine. What we call that, again, that cup spoken of in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He said, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. As often as you take it, drink this in remembrance of me. May I again say then, twice, that is the word remembrance. So when you take the Lord's Supper, are you remembering the Master? Are you remembering Jesus? Many people like to close their eyes during that time so that, again, they aren't distracted by maybe a small child or some other events in the auditorium. However, we choose to accomplish that. Jesus said, if we fail to discern the Lord's body and blood, that's what the Corinthians were doing. They were failing to discern the Lord's body. Paul said, you drink damnation to yourself if you do that. How strong is that? Drink condemnation to yourself if you take that fruit of the vine and do so without discerning the Lord's blood in His body. Again, that part of the worship causes us, demands of us to focus. And it may be challenging. It could be difficult. It doesn't reduce the requirement that the Lord gave us to do it. The Lord's Supper brings us to some of these verses. You'll notice in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, Paul used this statement. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Examine himself. 
Now, may we all appreciate that doesn't mean that we're going to examine ourselves to see whether we're worthy of partaking of it. None of us by ourselves will ever be worthy of the Lord's Supper. What he means is, as you examine yourself, are you taking of this and living a life that is becoming of a Christian? I would say the Lord's Supper may be the part of worship that should cause us to reflect on our life in a very dramatic way. Jesus died for me. Am I living for Him? Does my life present the evidence, the demonstration that I am committed to Him just like He was committed to me? Others, of course, can well be aware of those kind of features. So as we think about Jesus and His body and blood, that taking of the Lord's Supper presents a challenge, doesn't it? To be focused on Him. Let's close that slide like this. We've seen through five acts of worship then that all of them involve work, effort, endeavor, careful deliberation and consideration. How are you and I doing at worship? Have we allowed it to simply fall into a habit that we just show up an hour later or so, it's basically over? If our heart hasn't been in it, have we really worshiped in spirit? Even if we've done the acts as the New Testament speaks. And as we've learned today, the answer is no. That kind of worship would be vain. That worship would not be in spirit, which the Lord demanded. Let's close our slide and our lesson then this way. We began the lesson with a brief rehearsal of the nature of worship and the beauty of that thought. And following that, we gave some appreciation to the items of it. Five of them, we looked one by one at various passages speaking of our participation in it and our commitment to it. As we have studied all of that, it now begs of us each an individual reflection. May I be committed like perhaps never before to make sure I worship in truth and in spirit. Today, if there would be anyone in the audience, maybe you've never become a Christian. Don't you know the Lord died for you? And He wants you to be saved, but that decision is left to you. If you'd like to become a Christian, what a fantastic day today would be for you eternally. Believe in Jesus with all of your heart. Repent of your sins. Confess His name as the Son of God and be baptized. Upon becoming a Christian, have you been faithful? Has worship been as meaningful as it ought to have been? If you need to rededicate your thinking with regard to worship in a private way, please do that. If it needs to be in a public way, we'd be honored to pray to God on your behalf. This very day, if we could be of assistance in any of these ways, we would encourage you to come conveniently right now while together we stand and while we sing.